Starting off in uh, Genesis chapter 39, which is on page 41 of the Blue Bibles, if you're looking. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, He left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story of his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Next, we'll be reading from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, which is on page 1029 of the Blue Bibles. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, 
It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Let me pray, and then I'm going to uh, ask a question as I've been doing uh, throughout the series. Let's leave that there. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And today we want to challenge ourselves to live holy lives, pure lives, pleasing to you. Not to earn your favour, but because we have relationship with you, because of what you've done. And we want to honour you. Help us to do, think about that in your word, in light of the world and the lies, the myths that are so prevalent uh, in, our, in our world and that affect us deeply. Amen. Uh, I made a decision this, uh, this week to change the talk topic a bit. So we had the same readings and we'll, we'll get to them. But I had um, another talk that I wasn't going to do this series and I've decided to flip it. And so instead of doing a talk just on temptation, which we'll do another time, I've changed the topic of the talk to the, the other one that I've got called Purity in a Sex-Obsessed World. Uh, so the outline there is a good outline, um, but that's for another talk. Uh, all the all the points, there's five points, will be up on the screen with all the Bible uh, passages uh, as well that we're going to go through uh, today. Now, I wonder if you can tell me, what does Frank Sinatra, a classic 80s rock band rock set, and Star Wars have in common? <laughs> Tim, Tim, Tim. We're going to listen to a little bit of a uh, little bit of um, Frank and Roxette, and then uh, a bit of Star Wars. What do they have in common? It's all about the heart. It's not a it's not a new problem, is it? 1955, Frankie sang, uh, wrote that song. Listen to your heart, look to your heart, search your heart and you will find it. He's a mother's advice to his to her son. That son chose his heart and became the worst villain of all time. So just that that scene really gets on me. Um, I'm looking forward to this week. So but it is a thread that is profoundly important for us. For wherever you like to engage with culture, whether you hate those uh, three clips like Tim, or whether one of them you like. Yeah. I was going to confess that I owned that on vinyl as, to my shame, but knowing you like it now, Tim, I'm conflicted. Um, those three, those three clips, whatever it is, you will find the thread of looking to your heart, looking inside. And we need to wrestle with that. There's an element why we do that as humans, humans, which is valid. 
but we get to our problem. And as we, as we consider this a bit more today, we see that the world is crazy when it comes to sex. We've been saying that through the whole series on relationships. I brought up the other week Dr. Harvey Kellogg, and I kept on saying Kellogg instead of cornflakes because I just couldn't remember, cornflakes, and why he invented cornflakes. It was this ultra-conservative, crazy view that he had about cornflakes. It was ridiculous. It was absurd. He believed that this cereal would control desire in men. It was crazy. It became a nice cereal, but it was a crazy view on sex. But the thing is, we don't have crazy views on sex like that today. We've flipped it. And our crazy views are the opposite of conservative. Where we want to sell everything by sex where you can buy a Boost chocolate bar and the Boost chocolate bar is seen as a sexual item. I don't know if you ever saw that ad, uh, but the Boost bars were sold as um, this is something that you should buy because, well, it's sexy. It's a chocolate bar. Porn is seen to be good. It's a while ago now because Oprah doesn't have a show anymore. She's doing other things. But she had middle-aged women come on and a therapist which talked about trying to use research to say porn is good for a marriage. And it's not leading to the problems with adultery. It's just it, That's just an outright lie, but that's another thing. We spend more time on body image, clothes, makeup, footwear, sunglasses, probably than any generation before. And it's becoming less and less a uh, just a female problem as society has decided that we don't want to have gender. And it's hard for us to believe there was a time when we didn't have these crazy views on relationships. We've spent a lot through this series thinking about the things that lie behind that, haven't we? We've talked about those five things over and over again. We're in a post-Christian age. You can believe what you want, I can believe what I want, relativism. We, we had this view that was way back in the Bible of Gnosticism where the physical doesn't matter and it's actually this inner spark inside you, this inner belief. And so the physical is not what matters. We have all these crazy views. We have, uh, we have two more views. What are they? That I haven't said yet. Anyone want to yell them out? One's radical. Radical individualism. We have this idea that it's all about me choosing what I want and the heart plays into that very nicely. All of these things that we move into shape how we think. And we have a problem that we've got to address because we live in this world. And it doesn't matter whether we're, uh, whether we're 80 and moved beyond this being totally real for us or whether we're 10 and, it, and, and uh, it's all coming ahead to us in the rest of our life. We live in this culture. How do we think about this? Well, as God's people, we want to live holy and pure lives. So how can we live a life of purity, of holiness, in a sex-obsessed world? Well, what we need to see, the first point, is that we have a problem of the heart. There's a problem with the heart that 
while our society says what Frank says, what Roxette says, what um, Star Wars showed us and Disney has always taught, we need to think about our heart. We need to wrestle with how does our heart work? Because I think that's meant, because we constantly as a society look to our heart, we have a distorted view of love. We, um, this book, I, I really want to uh, endorse this book uh, just because it's a great title, it's very helpful, very short, called Sex is Not the Problem, Lust Is by Joshua Harris, who wrote that super conservative book on dating that I mentioned last week. This book's really helpful. He, he makes the point about lust, where he says, lust is uh, sexual desire minus honour and holiness. When you take away honour and holiness and just have sexual desire, you've got lust. Very helpful for us to wrestle with. You know, um, uh, the florists hate... I kept this article, this paper, I had a clipping of a Sydney Morning Herald years ago, where florists hate it when Valentine's Day falls on the weekend. Does anyone know why? you have a theory, theory why? Exactly right. That so the sales from florists go up on the weekdays because they have so many people send flowers to their mistresses at work, and so they they hate it. That's what this article was saying because their income goes drastically down. What an indictment on us! Day, uh, Valentine's Day card should probably read Happy Lust Day instead of Happy Valentine's Day. This is the context that we're in. And Jesus knew what the real problem with our heart was. Let's have a look um, at what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Would you believe, just that I didn't bring a Bible, I'll look it up on the screen. Matthew 5, 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's hard to say Jesus just said nice things, isn't it? (laughs) How serious does he take it? How clear does he have that the good way that we have made has been distorted and that our hearts that are made to honour, that are meant to honour and be holy and be focused on God as image bearers have a significant problem. That you can't just think about the wrong as in things you do. You've got to look beyond that to see that when your mind is taking you to places that are opposite of what God wants, you have the problem. See what he says? 
they, you, you've heard that it was said. It's kind of, you've heard that, you might have heard this. It's one of the commandments. They know what he's talking about. You shall not commit adultery. But if you look at a woman lustfully, you, you've got the problem. That's probably, that, I think that actually highlights the depth of the problem because that's, I, I think, probably saying that every single guy at some point has had that problem in their life. If any, I think that highlights the seriousness of it and unlikely that anyone's escaped the depth of our broken heart. You see, insatiable desire, the need for something because it feels good, it makes you happy, it's forbidden, is the opposite of what God wants. And Jesus is pointing that out. He, he, he talks about it so bluntly, doesn't he? He says, chop off limbs, gouge out your eye, because the consequences of just rejecting me and going on a path of uh, immorality which has not me in the picture is eternal destruction. And yet, lust wants you to think you can't live without it. I think there's a catchphrase for lust. It's one word. Gimme, 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 gimme. That's how lust thinks. I want that. I need that. I must have that. I'll lose rationality because this is good. I need it. Forget the consequences. Think. Forget what's around me. But where does it come from? James uh, chapter 1 verse 4, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Can you see there how what James is saying is, we've talked a lot about the world and the problems that we're in and how hard it is and all this context, but let's not then blame the world. The problem is with us and our own hearts, and we, what we let ourselves do. When they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. You see, the problem with going to the heart is that the heart is broken. How broken is it? Well, in this excellent chapter in John chapter 8, a very helpful chapter to see where we are with God. There's one way of summarizing that chapter in chapter 8 verse 34 where Jesus says very clearly in the next screen, hopefully it's there, is it not there? 8.34? Oh sorry, yeah I just didn't change the verse. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, a servant to sin. That is Sin is not something that you can put in a basket and say, oh, I can do that or I can't do that. The way you think about your relationship to sin is that I've got to do it. Frank um, Sinatra had some classic hits, one of, the, one of the greatest. One of his biggest songs is probably the definition of radical individuality. What is it? I did it my way. He didn't do it his way. He did it the way of being a slave to sin. We embrace that way as a culture. 
of I did it my way, I made some, I had some mistakes, a few, all that, all that kind of idea. But the problem is that way is broken. Do you think without Jesus, you can happily see yourself as a slave? If you don't have Jesus, in whatever way it looks, even if it's dressed up in freedom, dressed up in your version of free will, dressed up in your version of choosing what you want, that you're a slave to sin. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. They promised them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. The obsession with sex points out that it's our master, not our freedom. Jesus, in his word, God's word, wants us to see and pierce and understand deeply what all of us are like without him. We so get into trouble in this series, and I think it happens that just kind of natural, it's part of our problem I think, is that we think about this series and think about out there in the world and what's going on or even other people and how depraved things is and we get depressed. To be honest, whenever I do this series, it affects me physically and emotionally because it's depressing because I seek to think about the world and I actually hate it. I prefer not to. It's been more depressing this year, this time because of what our, uh, our country has decided to do and how much we have just said that love is whatever you want it to be and there's no determination for it and, and how we've changed things so badly that we're the bad guys. What we need to see though, as we look out there, is we need to stop and as we did a communion, come before God and realise... I don't need to look out there, I need to look here. And that's what Jesus has redeemed me from, if I'm a follower of him. And I need to acknowledge there lies the problem. Love is distorted by lust. And we want to think about how we can live pure lives. And so the second point is how can we possibly be pure? Well, it's because of Jesus. It's because of God who makes it possible. Have a look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. They're on two, on two slides. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. God wants us to be eager to follow him, to be like Jesus, to purify ourselves, to rid ourselves of sin. How do we do that? We don't look to rules, we don't look to regulations, we look to what saved us. Just flick back to the previous slide if you can uh, for our section. The grace of God, our salvation, that he has given it all to us, verse 12, teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It not only saves us, it teaches us and changes us to be different people. 
we can be free from the slavery to sin, not just sexual sin and relational kind of sin, all of our rebellion against God, there can be total freedom because his death has dealt with it for us. If we don't jump to that, run to that, lean on that, no matter what we're battling with, if that's not our first port of call, if our hearts are slightly hardened to that, we're in trouble. That is what we embrace. That is what we never leave behind. And so if you're sitting here today and you think you can't get out of the sin that you're in, maybe you can't, but that's the point. It's Jesus who pulls you out of your sin by his grace and the death on the cross, where he became sin for you. There is redemption in verse 14 of Titus. That is, you are pulled out of your slavery. You're a slave to sin, but in Jesus, you've been freed from it. So if you've been freed from it, now we seek to live pure, holy lives. We can grow in Christ-likeness. But the picture that I read of Revelation at the end of communion, of this perfection and no pain, we're not there yet. We're not going to be perfect this side of heaven, but we seek holiness, longing for that. If you've been coming to grow for a while, even if it's your first time and you think, you know what, I've kind of been pretending a bit. Make today the day where you say, I reject the world, I reject my slavery to sin, Jesus has redeemed me, he is my Lord and Saviour, and make that commitment today. And know what we always talk about, you are assured in your salvation. And we can celebrate that with you. See, God, third point, really does want you to be pure and holy. He really does. He wants us to learn the disciplines of abstaining, of control, of not being caught in lust. See, when love is replaced by lust, we start believing things that are not true. But have a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that is, grow in Christ-likeness, be holy, be changed to be like Him, that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. What we're reading is God saying, I want you to be like me. Don't just come and outrightly reject me. Don't think that it's okay for you to have these things that are all right to continue to do when I want you to be over here, turned towards me, honouring me. He wants us to learn, to pray for, to work at holiness. So as I said, when love is replaced by lust, 
we can start to believe things that are just not true. We can start to take on board, even subconsciously, the myths the world live by. And we need to find them, understand them, and be honest about them with ourselves and how they affect us. We need to wrestle with how we see ourselves. I want us to think through uh, two things. Uh, I want us to think through two myths. There's many myths that we can think through. I want us to think through the fourth, the fourth point. I want us to destroy two myths today. I want us to destroy something I brought up, I think, the other week. Beauty is where real value lies. Physical beauty is where real value lies. The problem we have is we're not willing to own up to the fact that we think that's partly true. Because while we may say it with our mouths, we constantly live it out. That we're in one big competition. That we constantly come back to the idea that look at what they have. Look at what they're doing. Do you find it hard not to compare yourself to someone else in any aspect of life? The answer has to be surely yes, for all of us. I could think of at least 10 ways this week where, for good or bad, there's been some kind of comparison involved. It's hard when we get together at Centre Pastors, all of us talk around the network, to hear what's going on in the other church and not think, oh, but that's not happening at Grove, or that is happening at Grove, how awesome are we? Like... We do that in all aspects of life. We build it the competitive nature, which there is some good components to being competitive, but the competitive nature that we build up in school to teach kids that they've got to succeed, they've got to be great, they've got to be wonderful, that they've got to achieve. And the way you do that is by beating the person next to you. You go to university, is it a competitive environment? Of course it is, so you compare each other. And then you start to look at each other and think, I wish I was like them. We have a competitive comparison culture that we live in. And so when it comes to beauty, we all are trapped up in that. We want to get past that. You see, I think the world is affected by what I like to call, it's kind of moved on from the first time, but what I used to call the, the Lohan Cyrus effect. Remember Lindsay Lohan and Miley Cyrus? See, what they were... Years ago, they were lovely, adorable Disney kids who made Disney movies. Miley Cyrus had one of the biggest kid uh, TV shows that was all sweet and innocent where she dressed up as a rock star and no one knew it was her like Clark Kent. It was all ridiculous. And it was massively popular and Disney churns through these celebrities every year, time and time again, and they go through and they're all sweet and innocent. And that whole time, it's all about looking to your heart and being nice. And then what happens? Well, they start to turn 16, 17, 18, and new birth happens. Lindsay Lohan fell completely apart into all sorts of manner of disaster. And Miley Cyrus, well, we know what kind of pop star she's become, where she's no longer innocent. She thinks 
more than anyone else, I can do whatever I like. She's another person who totally subscribes to individuality. She, her songs are known for their outrageous uh, sex appeal. So the kids love Miley Cyrus, get hooked on thinking about the heart, which they don't realise, and then their stars become all sexual. That's interesting, isn't it? That's how Disney has operated in the process, no doubt. And all the while, we're told how fabulous we look and it messes up our standard of beauty. What does it do for us? It makes us start to think that there are certain image bearers of God that are worthless, that are junk, that maybe we feel like this. And it has a profound impact on us and particularly on girls, on women. It's a battle that if you don't accept that myth and wrestle with it, you'll find it harder and harder. 1 Peter, in talking to uh, women about how they should think about their relationship with their husbands, says something I think is actually quite helpful of just uh, realigning ourselves. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, of, which is of great worth in God's sight. You can dress yourself up all you like, but God's concerned about your heart being changed towards Him. Real beauty is found in Christ-likeness. Do we believe that? When we meet our Maker, He's not going to say, gee, you had a good hairdo back in 2017. He's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant, for following me to the end as I've brought you here. He's concerned about your character. We've got to wrestle with this more and more. How much time do you give to inner beauty compared to your outer beauty? It's a really good idea to exercise. It's really good to look good. That's fine. It's not a problem to dress well if you like doing that. But where is your real value found? Beauty is where real value lies. The world isn't even willing to say that outrightly, even though it lives that way. The second one, porn, lust and all things sex is good. This myth is so prevalent that we just have embraced it full on. Porn is not addictive. All things sex and lust are good for you. There's no correlation between divorce and porn. That that porn does not devalue women or men when it's the other way around. And prostitution is actually fine and worthwhile, as we saw the other week. These things cannot be further from the truth. And while beauty, physical beauty, has having a big impact in the Christian church, porn 
is having a massive impact as well. Pastors are falling down. Relationships are breaking up. And we keep on, as a society, thinking it's okay. The reality is, the reality is, the power lies in one, in one key thing. Secrecy. Now, I know in this series, um, I, I, you know, talk pretty bluntly and, and go on, and, and some of you think, well, that's pretty, pretty intense. But part of talking this way is because that's what's going on, but also because the biggest problem we have is when these things are left secret. Let's own up to the fact that many of us are wrestling with porn right now. I don't know that because I've asked you or had those conversations. I know that because that's what's going on in our churches and in our society. I know that our relationships are struggling. I know that it's not just full-on porn, but the, just the bombardment of images over and over and over again that our brains are affected. There is no doubt that we have a big struggle in this area. What would you do if someone else at Grove came to you and said, I'm struggling here? What would your initial thought be? Let's, is there a sense of, wow, you've really, you step away? Or is it a sense of, brother or sister, let's deal with this and let's seek holiness and remember what Jesus has done for you and work out in whatever way we need to? Are we that kind of church that will not disregard people with their struggles but embrace them in Christ and his redemption? How do we think about these things? Porn is the opposite of the thing I talk about all the time, other person-centeredness. Because some people make the case, well, it doesn't hurt anyone. It's just you and a computer screen or an image of some description. It's not an issue. But what's on that screen? There is another human being. Whether they think, on, whether they think there's a problem or not, can we honestly say that it's other person-centred when there's someone else there? Have you ever considered that maybe that person has a mother, a father, an aunt, a grandma who loves the Lord and is crying out and praying for them to get out of the situation they're in? I don't know if you uh, know Katy Perry, some of you will, the, the famous rock star, um, if you call her that. I, uh, Tim would really like Katy Perry, I imagine. <laughs> um, you know, she's got that song, Raw, that even if you haven't, you've heard that song, Raw, from the Katy, Katy Perry. Um, what you might not know about her is that her, her parents are ministers. And that she's rejected 
their, um, their faith that she was brought up in, that she's rejected their way. And her parents have said on multiple occasions that we don't want people to judge our daughter, we want them to pray for her. You couldn't be more public than have someone who comes out and rejects everything about God and who sings songs all about sexuality um, when you spent your life telling people to follow Jesus, how confronting that is. When we think that way, there's always someone that is being hurt, whether they realise it or not. Let me give you, um, to finish off, some practical tips to think through holiness. I've got five. We're really going on for time, but um, we're not going to do question time today. All of this is in light of the redemption we've talked about in Jesus. That has to be first and foremost. That we don't forget, as we did in the Lord's Supper, forgiveness is given in Christ. So the first thing we need to remember of primacy, of total importance, that the word and prayer must be at the forefront. In my own life, And when I pass to people, whatever the struggle is, whatever we're wrestling with, it's so often, oh yeah, I know the word and prayer, but it's not doing anything and I move on forever. I need actual tips and practical advice. That's when we're in trouble. You've got to go back to God's word. Let the spirit transform you. As you read his word, you sit under it and you bring it to him in prayer. It's got to be at the forefront of everything. Secondly, we need to deal with our temptations. It's a, a whole talk that I haven't done today that we'll, we'll do another time where you think through what it is that you struggle with. What context are you in? Those two readings that we had today are fantastic readings to go back to. Joseph is oh, such a great story. That guy tried so hard not to be in a situation to be tempted. He had a woman of power. Um, it's kind of really stark in the flip in, in society in that way, in that time, that was a woman in power chasing Joseph who wanted clearly to sleep with him even though she was married and he kept on running away, kept on running away, didn't even want to be in the same room as her and then he still got caught. And that's sometimes what happens. You put all these great strategies in place and you still get in that situation. What does he do in that situation when he's caught? He runs. He doesn't even think about it. He doesn't process anything. He just runs. He leaves his coat behind. He didn't think, oh, she could use this coat to, to her advantage and throw me in jail and I'll be in all sorts of trouble. He just ran because honouring God was his priority. Putting your joggers on at all times and running is the strategy for dealing with temptation. And Jesus knows what you're going through brothers and sisters, we we go into this in depth another time where Jesus was tempted in all ways. He understands, he came in the flesh, dealt with Satan himself, who is behind all of your relational temptations. Jesus was there with him and what did he do? Word is prime. He threw God's word back at Satan and took him down. Thirdly, don't perpetuate the myths. Don't perpetuate the myths. We have a responsibility to help each other out. How we think. We change this comparison 
problem that we have, that we get rid of the beauty competition. We, we think it's hard enough to deal with life. We don't want to compare each other in a, in a godly Christian community. We want to get rid of uh, porn. We want to put it out in the open. Stop it being secret. We don't want to say any of it is good. And we want to realize the way we conduct ourselves, the way we uh, dress, what we say, how we think, we actually need to give thought into, not that just I think this is okay, but where am I with everybody else? How can I be helpful? And we don't perpetuate the myths. Fourthly, we change our standard of beauty. I still think Jen is as beautiful as the first day that I, that I met her. But the more and more I get to know her, the more and more I see what a spectacular person she is because of her inner beauty. That's how we all should think about our own lives. Can people say that? About us. Not just in a relationship sense, but just in a godly character, Christian sense of this is who I am and this is how people should see me. The last one to finish. There is a good mood killer to temptation. We don't do anything in private. Jesus came. He's the Lord of all. He's sovereign. He is in the room. When you're tempted, remember Jesus is in the room with you and he is your Lord. He forgives you and he knows your struggles. Turn to him. Let me pray that we will seek more and more to honour God. Heavenly Father, we, we pray that you will help us to be transformed more like into Jesus, into his character. Life is a struggle. The world is a strange, godless place. And our heart before Christ is broken. We truly ask that your spirit will transform us, redeem us, make us new. Help us to long for heaven. Amen.